Alrighty, welcome back to Brojo Online. Today we're going to be talking about finding meaning in your life and how to do it without needing external rewards or without needing to follow any one particular religion and even without needing science, without needing fame, without needing wealth, without needing approval. We're going to have a look at how to create meaning in your life without these things. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity with Dan Munro. So I think it's now beyond dispute to claim that the human race in general is experiencing a crisis of meaning. Whether you call it purpose or spirituality, happiness even, though I hate that word. Whatever word you want to use for it, we seem to be missing something. We seem to be a species that's doomed to self-loathing and self-destruction through our obsession for materialistic growth, our addiction to instant gratifications, our divisive tribalism, and our unrelenting neediness, that hunger for social approval. You know, having conscious awareness, being a human with conscious awareness, it comes with a price. We know that each of us is going to die. It terrifies us. Other animals don't have this dilemma. They don't really realize that they're going to die someday. They're too present to have that kind of worry. And knowing this, it raises some terrifying dilemmas for us. You know, it raises some really intimidating questions like, Who am I? Why am I here if I'm just going to die? What's the right thing to do? What's the point? These kinds of questions come up. And I found that there's there's three ways that people primarily answer them or try to answer them that I don't think are helpful. Those three essentially are materialism, science, and religion. I want to talk about those today. Materialism. Many of us believe that a good life comes from something we call success, which is almost always defined as some variation of being rich and or famous, you know, being extremely wealthy or extremely popular usually as a result of being particularly skilled in something, like being an actor, or being very good-looking. Even though lately it seems being skilled is becoming a less necessary part of the process, just being rich for the sake of being rich, or famous for the sake of being famous, is deemed good enough. The Kardashians being a good example, or someone with inherited wealth being an example. Materialistic people are obsessed with more more likes on Instagram, more money in their pocket, more property, more status, and better. Whatever they've got is constantly being upgraded to to beat the competition. When I say a materialistic person, I don't mean someone who's superficial. I just mean someone whose primary motivation is success. So materialistic people, they're always in this constant state of attempted improvement. You're never good enough. You can always be better. You're always in competition with everyone around you or certain people around you. The winner of this competition claims all. Be the best and you'll have a meaningful life. You've proven that you are worth something. If you fall short of this, then you're a worthless failure. Difficulty being, of course, being the best in the world is almost impossible. There's always someone better than you. So the system is kind of doomed. And despite the overwhelming rates of suicide, drug abuse, depression and divorces among the rich and famous people that we admire, we seem undeterred in our faith that success is the answer to our existential woes. 
We see clear evidence that it doesn't work, and yet we still follow it as if it does. Next one is science and, and atheism. The scientifically minded people, they look for patterns of cause and effect to give meaning to their lives. Scientists are at heart deconstructionists. They take things apart to see how they work. They break things down into ever smaller parts to understand the greater structure and the kind of supply chain that leads up to things. Everything is explained by either determinism or randomness. There is no grand design. Everything leads up to something or a random element throws it off track. Those are the only two principles that need to be understood. So for scientists and atheists, their sense of meaning comes from understanding how things work. All the while trying to accept the increasingly accepted atheistic premise regarding meaning and purpose. That being that there is none. That this is all random. There was no grand design. The, the scientists, they look for a community that agrees with them and they take solace in knowing that we're all going nowhere after we die. We've all got that in common and we can't stop it from happening but we can understand how it came to be that we have a life and how life works. The leaders in this field, like prominent scientist Richard Dawkins or renowned atheist Ricky Gervais, invariably claim that they have that they find meaning in the amazing discoveries of science. And this might be true for them, perhaps, but most laymen, like myself, are intimidated by the constant revelation of randomness. We hide behind our cell phones to avoid the bleak truth that it's all pointless, that it's all just randomly occurring with no grand design. Understanding that that's happening doesn't bring us relief, but anxiety. The next one's religion and spirituality. The religious look towards claims of the supernatural, towards the idea of a higher power or god of some kind, a creator, manager, blueprint that gives us hope that this whole chaotic mess we call life has a design, a structure, and a purpose. It's all leading up to something. It's all come from somewhere, and it all makes sense somehow. You know, the religious, they take comfort even in not understanding this master plan. They don't need to understand it, they just need to know it exists, and that each of us is a part of it, and that's enough to sleep at night. I saw some studies, though I struggled to find the citation later on, that claimed that being religious, uh, in self-reported studies at least, being religious means you're more likely to claim to have a meaningful life. Religious people look around for a community that agrees with their beliefs, and they take this as evidence that they're onto something good. From churches and temples through to the Flat Earth Society conferences and Burning Man, they surround themselves with evidence of social proof, while also seemingly delighting in resistance from those outside the group. There's something about being in a group and having an enemy that gives them meaning. You can see this even with the most sort of like non-denominational hippies you know they they won't subscribe to any one particular religion but they definitely see themselves as like woke and then there's the enemy who's not woke so we've got these three things materialism science slash atheism and religion slash spirituality where else is there to go because when we turn to materialism we end up stressed about our performance and stuck with this insatiable hunger for more all the time the meaning is ruined by the constant chase. When we turn to science, we end up depressed about the bleak pointlessness of life. 
and the randomness of it all and the ignorance of other humans even. You know, a lot of atheists, their greatest woes come from people who believe. You know, it bothers them. Or we turn to religion and we end up anxious about the afterlife and about the approval of our peers. We want to make sure we stay in the group. And we're scared about how well we've followed the rules, whether the universe or God is going to punish us or reward us once we cark it. And all the while, all of the people in these groups are fighting each other to prove that their way is the right way. I feel quite excited by this kind of examination because in my lifetime, I've been lucky enough, I think, is the best way to put it, to discover an option that isn't any of these three, what I might call the fourth option. I've been in some way or another part of all the other three options. I've chased money and status as a materialist. I'm certainly still to this day atheistic and a big believer in science. And I've even had little forays into religion. Not organized religion necessarily, but I've certainly believed in things that don't have evidence, like positive thinking or positive affirmations. But none of these things worked for me in the long run. I still had chronic anxiety and waves of depression. Still doubted who the fuck I was and what I'm doing here and what the point of it all is. Especially as the human race seemed to double in size while halving in intelligence in my lifetime. You know, it became pretty bleak. But then I found this fourth option. It's one that's reduced my chronic anxiety to almost zero. It's very rare for me to experience anxiety at all these days, except in situations where I'm genuinely threatened. It's weaned me away from episodes of depression. I used to get two or three of them a year that would last weeks or even months. And now it's like once a year I'll have a couple of bad days. I've found this other option that's left me with no doubt about who I am or why I'm here. No doubt whatsoever. And yet, it's detached from any supernatural ideas. There's no pursuit of material possessions. I don't need approval from others. And even the scientific truth, I guess you'd call it, that we're all going to die and that there is no grand design, doesn't bother me. That works well with what I've got going on. Yeah, I can see those things without being affected by them in terms of my own sense of meaning. And before I share what this is, I want to talk a little bit about those other options of which you've probably subscribed to at least one. And, and I just want to justify my views a little more clearly on why I believe using those ways to find meaning is a mistake. We'll start with uh, science, atheism, humanism, that kind of category. We so often refer to science like it's a single entity. We'll say something like, science says it must be true. But science is not a thing. It's a body of work that shares an empirical process and a set of guidelines. Science is a process more than anything. It's a way of trying to establish what is accurately true. And yet the way we refer to science, we treat it like a god. When someone says, according to science, they imply there is a godlike entity dictating wisdom to us all, this thing called science. While that may not be how scientists intended it to be received, Many of us have come to the conclusion that if science says it so, it must be right. As if science is this one point of information. The issue I have with using science to find meaning in life is specifically around the weakest point in the scientific process, and that is human opinion. Now science as an entity gives us no guidance on how to live. 
It's in the opinion of the scientists or the commentators involved that where guidance is issued. Science might tell us that medicine helps people live longer, but it's only the opinion that says that people should live longer. Maybe living longer isn't what's right, but science can only answer the questions we ask. It cannot tell us if they're good questions. When a study is conducted, no matter how empirical it is, no matter how great the sample size or how carefully the double-blind control measures are implemented or how well it's peer-reviewed, in the end, the opinions of humans involved in the study or reporting on it are where the guidance comes from, in terms of meaning. Like the choice to fund the study is based on opinion. We like to think that studies are just chosen because it's a good idea, but actually it's completely a capitalist model. The people who fund the studies do so because it's in their best interests to know the answers to that question. Governments and corporations are what fund studies. It's not just good-hearted people who want to know the answer to something out of pure curiosity. So the whole body of science in general, the whole collection of works of science, are based on somebody trying to make a profit or someone trying to control a population, which already that opinion that this is what we should be studying severely limits what we could be finding out. The questions are not unbiased. Often the reason for conducting the study is based on someone's subjective opinion. Like thinking something's bad and it needs to be fixed, so we conduct a study on how to fix it. Well, the idea that it was in need of fixing in the first place is just an opinion. We'll talk more about that soon. And then, of course, the worst bit is the conclusions drawn from the results of the study. That's the most biased part. When the study provides us with data... And then a human being comes in and decides what we're supposed to do with this information, what it means. Now, why does all of this matter for finding meaning in life? Why am I having a big problem with this? I'll explain with an example. There's a study, which I'll link below, uh, that compared various attempts to treat severe depression. From the use of SSRIs, through to CBT therapy, and even electroshock therapy. Yet there is a glaring omission from the study. And you know what it is? Nobody, from start to finish in the study, considered the possibility that it might be good to have severe depression. The whole study is based on the assumption that depression is something that needs to be cured. Now you might think this is obvious, that there's no way it could be good to have depression, and therefore it's not worth considering that option. But where did you get that certainty from? Ancient philosophers often referred to phlegmatic moods, as a time of reflection and learning. There was a time where we viewed depression as an important part of the wisdom process. So where did you learn that it was a disease that required treatment? How did you come to that conclusion? Because it sucks to be depressed? Because depressed people tend to commit suicide? Do we know all the facts around all of that? Is suffering really so bad? Science never once said depression is bad. We asked science how to treat depression, and that begins with an assumption that we made, not science. Science can only answer the question that was asked, and the answer will be biased in whatever way the question is biased. Science, particularly in the fields of medicine and psychology, often starts with a basic assumption that pain is bad. All studies are then extrapolated from this assumption. But if pain is necessary for a meaningful life, then there are pitiful few scientific studies that will be able to help us find meaning. 
We can see from recent findings about the ice exposure techniques pioneered by Wim Hof, who is being studied by scientists at the moment. He started with the assumption that pain is helpful, that deliberately introducing pain into your life could have great benefits physically and psychologically. After his wife committed suicide, he sought out more pain rather than relief from pain. Most scientific studies are based on finding relief, not more pain. What if they're all answering the wrong questions? It's safe to say that before the scientific revolution, humans generally accepted that there would be hardship and suffering in their lives. I mean, I can only imagine this, but I feel pretty certain that, you know, a few hundred years ago, they would not have complained about their circumstances with the same vigour to which we complain nowadays. Certainly wouldn't have been bitching about getting offended, right? The Stoics, in particular, along with the original Buddhists and Taoists, constantly discuss the need to accept that life doesn't care about your feelings and that inner growth, resilience, and confidence comes from enduring painful experiences. Furthermore, scientists have an endless enthusiasm for finding out more and are never satisfied with an answer. This is my biggest fear around artificial intelligence. We keep building smarter machines without asking ourselves if we should. I feel like Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. Scientists can't stop themselves from finding out more and they get into an arms race about it without ever questioning, like, should we just leave this door closed? And that's the essential nature of science. There's always another question for every answer found. There's no final answer. And the problem with this is that meaningfulness and wonder of something can be destroyed by knowing too much about it, by pulling it apart. I first noticed this when I started learning guitar. Songs that were once magical were reduced by examination into just chords and notes. They weren't magical anymore. The tragedy of getting better at playing an instrument is it gets harder to find a musician who impresses you or moves you or blows your mind with the beauty or complexity of their music. You know, you can hear something for the first time and think, wow, that is so good. Only to find later that it was good just because they followed a classic chord progression and combine that with standard song structure. You know, Coldplay is a band that's a great example of this. Basically, all of their songs follow one simple formula that most humans are psychologically incapable of disliking. And it kind of ruins their music once you see the formula being played out in every single one of their songs. You just feel manipulated. It's not beautiful anymore, it's more like a scam. I imagine the same tragedy occurs for aspiring magicians and painters, other artists. Once the impossible becomes possible, and then just plain ordinary, because you've learned the rules and the tactics, all the wonder and meaning kind of gets drained out of it sometimes. Science turns the wonder of the proliferation of species on this planet down into a relatively simple evolution formula. It turns the chaotic thrill of emotions into neurochemicals and involuntary synaptic processes. It turns the glory of a sunrise into burning gas, light prisms, optical receptors, and inherent color preferences. Now, I'm more a scientist than I am a religious person, by far. Yet both music and science has taught me that deconstructing something is not the path to finding meaning in life. Though doing so provides helpful insights, information, and skills, I'm absolutely on board with being as close to the accurate truth as possible. The meaning is found elsewhere. Sam Harris, a neuroscientist, atheist, rationalist, 
He says, you know, he doesn't look at his daughter and think, wow, look at all these atoms giving rise to cuteness in my conscious awareness, or words to that effect. He finds the meaning of love for his daughter somewhere beyond deconstructing her or his relationship with her through scientific method. Scientific atheists like Steven Pinker often relate meaning back to this thing called humanism, claiming that morality and goodness can be derived from scientific exploration into what enhances quality of life for humans. You know, what makes us well and happy is good. But this is, again, based on the assumption that humans should be doing well. I'm sure a few other species on this planet might raise objections with the growth of Homo sapiens. And who's to say that us feeling good is what's best for us? Who's to say that sickness and tragedy is not good for meaning of life? If we don't start with the right assumptions, we'll end up asking the wrong questions. Now I'm actually, like I said, a big supporter of of science, but just not for finding meaning. Now a lot of people who agree with me are the religious, and they think the answer to science is lack of ability to find meaning is through religion and faith. But don't you worry, I've got plenty of problems with religion too. I recently watched an interview with the actor John Cleese from Monty Python um, in the YouTube channel Rebel Wisdom. And he made a point that while Jesus was all about poverty and humility, the subsequent forming of the Catholic Church led to a distinct abandoning of these principles by his followers. Christianity has become synonymous with child molestation and greedy evangelists sucking their followers dry. Islam has become synonymous with sexism, jihad, and terrorism. And even Buddhists have somehow managed to find their way around to committing war crimes. I myself recently uh, visited the Vatican, and I was struck by the juxtaposition of seeing thousands of people lining up to spend at least 10 euros each to visit St. Peter's Basilica, and this was during a single morning of the off-season, while right outside the gates were a whole bunch of homeless people begging. You know, it seems to me the Vatican's profits, which must be gigantic, have had some difficulty spreading out to the poor people, those in need, right outside their gates. I mean, what would Jesus say about all that money staying in the temple? If I recall my lessons correctly, he kind of had a beef with money in the temple. See, the trouble with spiritual and supernatural beliefs as a way to find meaning is where they end up leading you, and that is they inevitably become immersed with tribalism and profiteering. In the same way that science is incapable of acting independently from capitalism, because no one would fund the studies, spirituality seems incapable of remaining independent from the formation of religious communities and dogma. Once you're in any sort of community, your human brain automatically creates an in-group and, by definition, an out-group. In the community, certain power-hungry people are always going to be the most ambitious, and so they'll rise to the top of the hierarchy, and there's always a hierarchy. And this leads to an over-representation of psychopaths and fanatics in executive positions. In those positions, they then form rules about who's allowed to be in the group and how they must behave to remain in the group. And even worse, rules are formed about how to deal with who's out of the group, from relatively innocuous things like attempted conversion or just excluding them, but it goes all the way through to genocide. Even in the most loosely formed communities, spiritual communities, things tend to go sour. 
We all know some story of a group of hippie types that got together to form a commune, so they can be in touch with Great Mother Gaia or something, and within 12 months they become a sex cult that abuses children. And the modern religion of today has got to be conspiracy theories. These seem to be cumulative. I've got a few friends who are into conspiracy theories, and they seem to collect them like stamps. They might start with just, say, being anti-vaccinations. And within a few months, they think planes are doing the chemtrails, you know, dropping mind-controlled chemicals, and that aliens built the pyramids, and all of this has been controlled by reptile Illuminati, genetically modified overlords from Monsanto or something. It just gets out of hand real quick, you know. The same process applies to conspiracy theories as with any other religion. Communities are formed, leaders are elected or often self-appointed, rules are created, enemies are identified and attacked. What starts as, say, a lively conversation with your stoner friend about how the banks control everything, you know, ends up with you cyberbullying the crap out of some poor mother because you want to take a sick child to the hospital instead of treating it with urine therapy and essential oils. You know, it's a slippery slope. I've seen too many people go down that way. I've coached many clients who escaped a conservatively religious upbringing, and they invariably describe an echo chamber community based on fear of ostracism, guilt, and impossibly high standards. The search for God just ends up devolving into the worship of some random dude wearing a dress with a fancy hat, telling you that you were born a worthless sinner and you must hate on other people to stay in the club. Oh, and by the way, a mandatory donation, because God apparently is a bit skint. Show me any religion, any community with a common faith-based belief, and I'll show you an example of how it has led to acts of hatred. I think it's safe to say that hatred and a meaningful life are opposite ends of a spectrum. You can't have both. Religion and spirituality might help you find a community that you can belong to, but believing in something for which there is no evidence is not the most effective path to creating a purposeful life because it will probably just take you into hateful tribalism, or at the very least, a deluded view of reality. And finally, let's look at the problem with materialism, success, and social approval. Now, while many business leaders, capitalists, and celebrities, either directly or indirectly, claim that the idea of being rich and well-loved will ensure you enjoy life, the statistics aren't favoring their position. With money, studies typically agree that a certain amount of resources will correlate highly with your reported level of satisfaction with life. However, this tends to peak for the general population at around $75,000 per year, or the equivalent of the country you're in. After that, more money makes no significant difference. In fact, it can act as a bit of a peak with a downhill happening in correlation with money. I'll link all of the sources for this below. It's been concluded that money is only associated with quality of life in terms of the medical health care that's available to you. And the ability money has, or you might say the ability money has, to provide you with access to certain positive emotional states, such as the fun you can have while traveling. Beyond these brief highs, you need something else to find meaning. It can be surmised, then, that should you find a way to manage your health and enjoy life, find, you know, appropriate range of emotions, without money, then you don't actually need much money at all. 
There's plenty of evidence that poorer people can find joy and meaning in their life despite their seemingly disadvantaged positions. When it comes to using money to buy stuff, or being in a privileged position in which you come to possess things quite easily, again the science clearly shows that while you might enjoy temporary highs or a delusional attachment to inanimate objects like hoarders, possessions do not bring about a long-term meaning in life. However, we can't deny that one thing success and wealth can bring you is fame, love and approval. The most successful and rich amongst us often also enjoy far more positive attention from others than the rest of us do. So does that make pursuing money worth it? Is that the kind of path to a meaningful life, to be famous or well-loved and approved of? Well, one clear fact to contend with is the shocking number of well-loved celebrities who have taken their own lives. Since the year 2000, over 100 recognized popular figures have committed suicide, many of whom would also be considered wealthy, like Chester Bennington from Linkin Park, a well-loved musician, Robin Williams, actor and comedian at the very top of his game, and Dave Mira, a motocross superstar, one of the most skilled motorcycle riders on the planet. While there are always exceptions to any rule, how can there be so many rich and famous people killing themselves if being famous and adored and loved by many people is truly the answer to a good life? I would expect in the area where the most meaning is found, there would be the fewest number of suicides. Capitalism has confused the pursuit of meaning with consumption, acquisition of wealth, and approval of the crowd. Yet this has proved to be a false idol. The more we have, the more there is to lose, so we become really anxious about it. The more people who love us, the more pressure on us to live up to something that they love. And over time, it starts to make less sense that we don't enjoy life. Once you become richer and more popular, you experience an existential crisis where the person who's achieved wealth and fame doesn't feel any better for the experience overall. They feel as miserable as they did in high school, or maybe even worse. This can quickly lead them to come to feel like there is no way to enjoy life. I want to share something I've read. I'm reading Andre Agassi's autobiography at the moment. He's the famous tennis star. Two little paragraphs. One, the first one, on winning. This is right after he won Wimbledon for the first time in 1992. He says, I don't feel that Wimbledon has changed me. I feel, in fact, as if I've been let in on a dirty little secret. Winning changes nothing. Now that I've won a slam, I know something that very few people on earth are permitted to know. A win doesn't feel as good as a loss feels bad. And the good feeling doesn't last as long as the bad. Not even close. And the next one is right after Wimbledon, he essentially became famous. He was kind of famous before, but then he like shot to stardom. And this is what he has to say about it. I marvel at how unexciting it is to be famous, how mundane famous people are. They're confused, uncertain, insecure, and often hate what they do. It's something we always hear, like that old adage that money can't buy happiness but we never believe it until we see it for ourselves. I feel confident at this point to claim that fame, wealth and approval will not guarantee you a meaningful life and in fact is more likely to take you towards existential despair 
if you've come to believe that that's the answer. Because once you discover that it isn't, you get like the double down punishment of feeling lost, like everything you've tried doesn't work and there is no point. You can quickly come to feel like there's no way to enjoy life if wealth and fame doesn't do it. But there is a way, as many former wealth and fame obsessed public figures have discovered. Jim Carrey, the actor, has found a way. Darren Brown, the stage illusionist, he's found a way. Bill Gates and his wife Melanie have found a way. They've all escaped from the allure of riches or fame and found something else, and that's what I'd like to talk about now. So let's talk about the fourth option, which I would simply call value-based philosophy. So in essence, science is objective. It's facts without guidance. Science can tell us what happens and roughly why it happens, but it cannot tell us what we need to do with that information or whether that was the right question to ask in the first place. It can only answer the questions we feel urged to ask or are funded to ask and not tell us which questions should be being asked. Religion is subjective. It's guidance without facts. Religion can tell us what we need to do but cannot provide good reasoning, logic or evidence to back up the claim that this is the right way to live. It cannot seem to function without restrictive rules and blind obedience to social structures that are all too often exploited by opportunistic narcissists. And materialism is rewards without guidance. We can win and lose without knowing if either winning or losing is essentially good for us, or whether we should be competing in the first place. We chase things without knowing if it's good to chase them. All three have the crucial flaw where someone else interprets the meaning of life for you. Now let me say that again, all three of them, materialism, science, religion, crucial flaw, someone else interprets the meaning of life for you. As I personally delved into materialism, science, and religion over time, I was struck by this recurring theme. It was scientists who told me depression was bad and rationality was good. It was priests who told me that stealing was bad and faith was good. It was capitalists who told me that being artistic was bad and chasing money was good. But no one was asking me what I thought was good or bad. I wasn't even asking myself. Funnily enough, the breakthrough for this dilemma came without me even looking for it. It all began with being a probation officer. I want to tell you a little bit about how I learned morality from criminals. We were constantly given tools to use with criminal offenders, helping them with a range of psychological and behavioral issues like anger management, drug addiction, and helping them choose better peers to be influenced by. These tools all had varying levels of success. But eventually I was exposed to a piece of work that started to have a phenomenal effect on the offenders I was trying to rehabilitate. It was an exercise simply called valued living. Based on a rudimentary combination of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and ACT, or acceptance and commitment therapy, the valued living exercise was all about identifying what was important to the offender himself. It was the first such piece of work like this I had ever seen. Everything else I'd ever used was designed to manipulate the offender into being a better person by society standards. You know, to make him to conform to our standards and laws so that he'd be less of a hassle to us and less expensive or harmful to us. But this exercise was unique and asked him what his own standards were. Now at first I was pretty sceptical. How could a serial murderer with a penchant for rape and a love for being in a gang, you know, what would he know about living in a valuable way? 
Well, after testing out the exercise dozens of times, I learned quickly the answer was actually quite a lot. I had guys who had never had a pro-social role model or influence in their entire lives tell me that they valued honesty, love, and respect. There were guys who spent a large portion of their time inflicting pain on others, and they were telling me that it's wrong to disrespect someone. I had guys who spent their whole lives away from their families because they were in prison the whole time, and they were telling me it's wrong to neglect your children. I had guys who stole something almost every day of their lives, and they were telling me it's wrong to be dishonest. They told me I didn't prompt them, lead them, or otherwise influence their decision making. Now sure, some of them would have been trying to manipulate me. But you must understand, I was working with guys who were already sentenced. There's nothing that they could get from me that they didn't already have. If anyone was manipulating me with this exercise, it's just because they like manipulating people. There's no no other reason to do it. There's no gains here. So I was left with a shocking realization, especially once the exercise started changing some people's behavior. These guys, maybe they didn't care about the law and hated authority, yet they still knew that what they were doing was wrong by their own standards. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the criminal justice system, you can be forgiven for believing that most offenders are without remorse. It's simply not true. Many are racked with guilt about their crimes, particularly for violence and sexual offending. And even with some gentle questioning to provoke empathy, thieves and con artists sometimes come around to feeling bad about what they've done. I want to tell you about what this has in common with the ancient Greeks. See, what's weird about this is these same people were raised and encouraged to commit these crimes. You know, most criminals come from a background that's pro-criminal. You know, I have plenty of, say, white power members, for example. They'll often come from a racist family and have exclusively racist friends. And yet years later, they feel bad for hurting people based on ethnicity. You know, that that guy will often come to this conclusion on his own, driven simply by his own guilt. Years after I had these insights, I was then introduced to the philosophy of Stoicism through Ryan Holiday's books, and to a lesser extent, Tim Ferriss. Turns out that thousands of years ago, before capitalism, science, and organized religion really came into any sort of coherent being, there was a bunch of old Greek dudes who would get together and chat about what it means to live the right way. They talked about virtues about Socratic examination of one's life, about facing the fact of death, and about living in a way that aligned with fate and with nature. Many of these conversations were recorded, written down, and often would simply begin with someone not knowing what was right or wrong about a certain situation, and then coming to a firm conclusion simply from being asked naive questions. He was not told what was right or wrong, he was asked. He was, it was examined. His answers might often go against what he was taught or what society demanded. He came to these conclusions even though everybody around him believed something else. You know, when you ask someone about right versus wrong, they will nearly always have an answer. Now, science would try to explain where the answer came from. Religion would try to judge the answer as either correct or incorrect, with rewards or punishments based on how accurate you were. And materialism would check to see how likely that answer would be to achieve a certain outcome. But the Stoics would simply ask, how do you know for sure? And then get into a discussion about it. This led to me turning my focus around. Eventually I applied the valued living exercise to myself. What this immediately made me realize is two key things. Firstly, I already have a pretty clear idea about what I think is good and bad. 
And secondly, I'm not living according to that in many important situations. I knew it was cowardly to avoid fear, yet I was binge drinking every weekend when I was socialising to overcome my anxiety. I knew it was dishonest to show a false presentation of myself, yet I'd pretend to agree with my intimidating boss just to avoid a hassle. I knew it was disrespectful to objectify women, yet I'd wear dark sunglasses at the beach so that I could secretly perv on them. I already knew. Even when everyone else around me was doing it too, I still knew when it was wrong. And you do too. See, science overthinks right versus wrong, because all it can do is aim to disprove things by deconstructing them until anomalies are found and patterns lose consistency. Religion is the opposite, and barely ever reconsiders previously drawn conclusions. It's still medieval in many places, preferring blind following of rules over sceptical analysis. And materialism is very dogmatic about right versus wrong. If it makes you rich and popular, it's right. Everything else is wrong. But you know if what you did in the last week was right, wrong, or neutral without needing scientific inquiry, religious commandments, or materialistic goals. Your difficulty is, really, it comes from separating what you know from the influence of these other three external manipulators. Your thoughts and emotions are already telling you what you need to know, at least enough to get you started. Like, if you don't like being lied to, and you feel relieved when someone comes clean with you, then you value honesty. If you feel bad about missing an opportunity just because you are afraid, and you feel proud of yourself when you overcome a fear, then you value courage. If you feel a sense of peace when you stop trying to control things, and annoyance when you can't let go of something that's outside of your control, then you value acceptance. If you feel angry about seeing someone getting bullied, and feel good about someone reciprocating what you've done for them, then you value respect. If you're annoyed by people complaining instead of solving their problems, then you value responsibility. If you feel sad about homeless children and neediness when you're lonely or sick, then you value compassion. You know what you stand for and against. And here's the secret. The meaning in life comes from living by these standards. Not the churches, not your parents, not what that scientific study said, not what society says. Your standards. If you hate it when someone won't let you into the right lane during peak hour traffic, then make sure you let people in when they're in the same dilemma, instead of being petty and blocking them. Choose kindness over revenge. If you feel grateful when someone was thoughtful enough to text you, asking you how you're doing after your surgery, then put more effort into reaching out to your friends and making sure they're doing okay. Refocus on what matters rather than getting too busy with pointless distractions. If you're outraged by President Trump constantly telling lies and squashing the media, then stop telling white lies yourself, just to avoid uncomfortable confrontations. Make sure no one could ever blackmail you or accuse you of being a liar by revealing everything you're scared to show. Your lack of meaning comes from not living by your own values. It comes from wasting time following other people's rules, or just filling in the space of meaningless with materialism and approval seeking. You already know it feels good to do the right thing, so make that the focus of your day. You don't need to deconstruct it, you don't need to win something from doing it, and you don't need others to agree with you. While you should definitely review each attempt to live by your values, just note whatever lesson needs to be learned and then move on to the next action. That is how you create a meaningful life.
If you need any help with that, get in touch. Dan at brojo.co.nz and give you some guidance. Leave your comments below, share this around if you enjoyed it, and I'll see you all next time. Cheers.